The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Wars. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Kirti Gupta, and I'm so glad to have Don Rosenberg as our podcast guest today on Geotech Wars. Don's a special guest for me because uh, I've worked with him for a decade when he was uh, executive vice president and general counsel and corporate secretary at Qualcomm, and he oversaw the company's worldwide legal affairs and global affairs team. Prior to Qualcomm, Don also served as general counsel at IBM and at Apple. And most recently, since he retired from Qualcomm, Don has been selected by the Department of Commerce to be one of the five committee members to recruit the board of the NSTC, National Semiconductor Technology Center, the nonprofit that is going to be a part of the public-private process for funding, innovation, and R&D in semiconductors. And he's also a fellow in residence at the School of GPS, Global Policy and Strategy at UCSD. Welcome, Don. Thank you, Kirti. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. So Don, let me start by asking you, how has the geopolitical risk that companies are facing changed over the last few decades? You've been around, you've seen large companies in action at IBM, then Apple, then Qualcomm. What's different today? Well, thanks, Kirti. I think that uh, the primary thing, certainly the thing that I've been focused a lot on is the fact that geopolitics has now become a major factor for companies in evaluating the risk of doing business globally, as many, many companies do, and the implications to actions taken by either governments or other entities which have an impact on every level of your company's engagement, whether it's with your suppliers, your customers, and so we've got to now, as corporations, make geopolitical risk a much more front and center element of the risk factors, which we have to continue to monitor as good keepers of shareholder value. And what happened in the last several years? Why, why now? What's different today? Well, two major events, of course, have really um, triggered this. One is the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and all that it has brought in terms of restrictions on doing business with uh, Russia, trying to uh, limit Russia's access and putting pressure on Russia other than direct military action. But actually, I think most importantly, the primary focus has been China. And you say over the decades, we all remember that there was great excitement in the early 80s, at least in the West, that China was going to be moving, despite its communist ideology, was going to be moving in a direction that's more consistent with the liberal open market system that had developed since uh, post-World War II. And China indeed started very much in that direction. I think there was a lot of misunderstanding on both sides about what China's entry is, for example, into the WTO meant and what its obligations were or weren't. And so we can talk some more about that, but that's 
I believe the really primary reason why things have changed in terms of the geopolitical risk that companies are facing these days. And also because we do so much trade with China today, right? We're joint at the hip. Our economies, United States and China, or largely the West or the rest of the world with China is the trade volume is so much higher than, you know, it ever was in the heyday of the Cold War between the US and USSR. You know, people talk a lot about the notion of decoupling, which I've often said, I think is nonsensical Mm -hmm. in the sense that we are so coupled as two economies, two of the two leading economies of the world. And we engage with each other uh, so directly in terms of the enormous amounts of exports and imports, depending upon which way you're looking at that uh, trade route, that it seems, in my opinion, silly to talk about decoupling. It's probably not even doable as opposed to something that we should be pushing forward on. Now, there's been a lot of talk about, okay, we're really talking then primarily about de-risking. And I think as all terms, they're not complete and they don't convey everything, but I think it's a better term than decoupling in the context of how the U.S. thinks about these things. And I think the rest of the West, which is the feeling that China has abused, if you will, it's welcome into the WTO and other aspects of the global economy. And they have, for example, in the opinion of the West, misappropriated intellectual property and, um, and other technological uh, advances. And so the de-risking, in my mind, equates to being more careful on the West side to protect those essential elements of your technological leadership through IP protection and through other means of protection. And I think that's a better way to look at this. It's not to cut off each other's access to one another. It's be more careful about protecting that which you think is something that is of competitive advantage. So let me ask you this, Don. I mean, on this issue with, uh, you know, the reason that you just described, the growing, escalating tensions with China, the semiconductor chip industry, which you're intimately familiar with, is at the forefront of this discussion, right? Chips are at the tip of the spear, as you would say, for addressing the geopolitical risk for diversifying the supply chain, for reducing our reliance on China, and for also limiting tech transfer in this industry to China, as has been indicated by many initiatives from the Biden administration, including export controls, specifically targeted towards semiconductor industries. You've seen that up close and personal, both in your role at Qualcomm and in your role at NSTC and as a scholar at UCSD. What happens there and what's realistic? How, how much can we decouple? Well, you're right, as you know, um, you and I, along with David T's co-author of a piece in the International In-House Council Journal on priorities, new priorities for uh, corporate directors and, and the C-suite when it comes to geopolitical and technological disruptions, so to speak. And as you know, Kirti, as you and I have spoken about this very often, and I think we're in violent agreement. Turns out that the semiconductor industry and experiences in semiconductors over the last several years is, in fact, as you said, can be viewed as the tip of the spear. That is to say, it's an example of why companies, whether they're in the technology field, semiconductors or, or anything like that, need to be very cognizant of potential changes in the geopolitical environment and the impacts on them. So in the semiconductor field, 
for example, as you mentioned, the U.S. became very, very concerned in the um, 2010s about where things were going with advancements in semiconductor technology that had dual use, and that is to say, use commercially, but also use uh, militarily. And while that was something that was, in my opinion, always there and obvious, uh, there were certain developments that made the U.S. even more concerned than had previously been the case. And so some of the steps that were taken were to try to, as I said earlier, correct steps, being more careful about how technological advances are exposed and shared, especially those, and in particular those, that can be used uh, to military advantage. And so things like the entity list uh, was utilized, other export controls uh, and restrictions and limitations, expanding some of those controls to even companies that were not U.S. companies, but had necessary engagements and requirements from U.S. Uh, companies. And so that all first was a major impact to Chinese companies, ETE and Huawei. Huawei got the most attention. And as a result of that, uh, eventually, over the last few years, with more and more restrictions imposed, Huawei, for example, was unable to continue as a device manufacturer, meaning a mobile phone manufacturer, and continue to use uh, the chips that it and all the other mobile companies needed to continue to create advanced mobile technology devices. And needless to say, Huawei and China were very, very disturbed about that and were put in a position where they necessarily felt that they had to continue on a path that actually Xi Jinping had, had established when he first took office back in 2012, which was something variously called indigenous innovation and other terms over the years have been. But basically, it's a concept of self-sufficiency. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about where that leads. I don't know if you'd like me to address that now or so, Don, you just mentioned the export controls against Huawei. How are they working out for us? That's an interesting question. Um, let me come at it this way. As I mentioned, for Huawei, it meant complete disruption of their device business, which meant uh, much more business for the likes of Apple, but also Xiaomi, Vivo, the other major players in China who were not affected by these particular restrictions and uh, controls. Now, I think it's interesting to note, and maybe not for everybody, but it's certainly interesting to note as, as I think back of, on Huawei, Qualcomm, where I was the general counsel, was uh, the major competitor with Huawei when it came to technological advances that were contributed to the standards bodies for purposes of developing 5G and mobile communication. Over the years, Qualcomm had become the major contributor. Uh, other companies were also contributors, Samsung, Ericsson, Nokia, and Huawei. And Huawei was building the number of contributions it made, it made over time. So if one looked at who were the chief competitors, that would have been Qualcomm and Huawei, which would have been a U.S. company and a Chinese company. The initial implications of the concerns about by U.S. about Huawei and what it was doing, as I said, from a dual-purpose perspective, not only impacted and directed at their chip development, but also their 5G leadership, if you will. 
And Qualcomm had played an interesting role because Qualcomm believed then and believes now, I think, that global standards in the mobile communications industry are imperative to maintain. And that means engaging with and interacting with all the participants. And so Qualcomm was not in favor of barring Huawei or barring Qualcomm from engaging with Huawei in these standards problems. We had to educate the U.S. government about that quite a bit. And, and I think this goes to the main subject of this conversation, and maybe I'll move just for a moment to that, which is it's imperative now as part of this new world of geopolitical risk that companies understand that they need to engage much more heavily with policymakers. They need to be able to communicate to policymakers who won't understand their business in any way as detailed as, as you do, that there are potential implications to policy decisions that seem to be directed at outside U.S. participants, but actually have impact on, on U.S. companies and companies um, in the West generally. And that's related to some of the things I was saying earlier, because there is that deep engagement between the U.S. and China that I described as impossible to decouple. So there has to be a balance between protection of uh, technology and how it is used uh, and um, the ability to continue to engage with the companies uh, against whom those, um, those protections are executed. So Don, we learned some difficult lessons in the semiconductor industry. But it's not the only industry that's facing or is going to face uh, some of the geopolitical risks that we've been trying to unpack through the rest of this podcast, too. You've been at different companies. You've been at IBM and Apple and at Qualcomm as general counsel. And they obviously, you know, all companies have different structures. In your experience, are there some structures that are better equipped to handle some of the new geopolitical risks and, and the ones that are upcoming than others? Let me answer that. And, and I also want to add something that's related to it. But to answer that question, I kind of alluded to it before in terms of the need for active engagement with government. It's my opinion, and there are many models, and I wouldn't necessarily say that mine is the best, but from my experience, a very strong government affairs group, which is tightly connected to the uh, legal department, is an essential element of this uh, need to engage to protect the corporation's interest. In my situation at Qualcomm, I had both, as you indicated at the beginning, I had both our global government affairs group and the legal function reporting up to me. So it was much easier in that context, to synchronize and to engage with one another and to coordinate and to actively plan and know that we aren't working against one another and that we were using both disciplines to help us not only communicate the needs of the company and the concerns of the company to the government, but also to help the business in terms of how it executed when it engaged with other countries, other companies in other countries that had policy implications. So that, to me, is, is the best model. If not directly reporting to one general counsel or executive, at least having a, an organizational connection that, as I say, is very tightly tied. That's important. I also wanted to add, to take it out of the context a little bit of the semiconductor. Again, it's a good example. We've all read and heard about supply chain issues that, again, cropped up in the semiconductor field when things started to get a little out of hand 
in terms of the concerns about doing business with China. And as we know, Taiwan, an independent country, although China would debate my use of that term, is the leading a manufacturer, producer of what are called leading edge chips, 90 plus percent of leading edge chips, which are the chips that are most significant to the operation of the high-end mobile phones and computing and, and other things. As I indicated before, there is a big, big concern about Taiwan security and what China may decide to do. It's talked a lot about uh, the need for reunification and the fear that if something were to happen there, that supply would be cut off from U.S. and other Western interests. And so it points to concerns about the supply chain. Should you, as a business, be entirely dependent on one supplier? We all, I think, believe that's probably not a good idea. Should you be entirely dependent on even multiple suppliers if they're in uh, the same geographical area? Now, others and I have thought about that for a long time, just in terms of physical geography issues. That is to say, what if there's a major earthquake in Taiwan and most of the fabrication facilities are destroyed or out of commission? Now you're in the same situation as you might be if China had decided to move against Taiwan. So those are risks that have been there before, but I think the geopolitical implications have now heightened the need to consider that. And as a result, as we see, uh, the CHIPS Act, which Kirti indicated that I've been very engaged with, is directed at trying to, on one hand, build fabrication facilities, manufacturing facilities, more of them in the U.S. and perhaps in Europe as well, uh, as alternatives to be able to turn to if there was a, a problem with Taiwan. And that, of course, applies to businesses across the board. If you're relying for other companies on elements of your product or distributors of your product, and there is suddenly a geopolitical crisis, you will be majorly impacted. And you have to plan in advance for, for what to do in that situation. Right. So I think what I'm hearing you saying is like, in terms of the key call to action for corporations are one, to understand their supply chain, two, try to diversify their supply chains, and three, have government affairs functions that are well organized and working in alignment with the legal functions in the organizations. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as always, uh, th those functions have to be tightly connected with the business so that they have a very strong understanding of the direction the business is going, what the business needs are, and can help identify and prepare in case of one of these risks of development. So that will help our corporations be ready for the geopolitical risk. Let me ask you another question. How much will that help? Our corporations in the United States are market-driven organizations. They are you know, tied to the interests of shareholders and the stock markets, and they have to compete in a global environment with companies, for example, based in China that have um, support from the government. So how do we address that incentives problem? Well, this is, this is a, a big topic that we have obviously not enough time for. There's multiple layers here. It has certainly been the case, I think, as we all should know, that China and its system is such that they fund government-ported businesses, they subsidize them, and there are example after example of companies that have been aided by these government subsidies when they're competing with Western companies in particular. In recent experience, the whole network infrastructure business, which had been primarily Ericsson and Nokia, has been 
pretty much taken over by Huawei and ZTE, not just in China, but in, in Europe as well. And in large part, in my opinion, that was because of subsidies that allowed Huawei and ZTE to undercut pricing when it came to installing these complicated and necessary network infrastructure facilities. And there are many, many more examples in, in other industries of that. So one of the things that our government ought to constantly be pressing on China and other countries is uh, the objection to government subsidies in a free market system. Now, the U.S. has often over the years talked about the fact that industrial policy is something that the U.S. does not employ to give advantage to U.S. companies. And we can debate whether that has always been the case. My concern has been that we often find ourselves being hampered by U.S. policy, whereas companies in China are aided by policy. And my primary example of that is in the competition law area, where I think the U.S. has been moving in a direction that is not taking account of the global economy that we all live in and need to be able to compete globally. Mm -hmm. And to compete in many situations with companies that are subsidized, aided, supported by their own governments. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That you know, competition law and I trust is uh, usually at a national level, and it's uh, really not reacting to or even taking into account the global or the geopolitical competition that we are living in today. Absolutely. When you look at Again, I don't want to sound as if I'm carrying briefs for the um, for the major platform players these days. But when you look at the arguments that are being made against Google and Amazon, Microsoft to some extent, which really can be reduced, perhaps simplistically, to big is bad again. That was an area era that we went through back in the 70s, I recall. We take that approach. We do it as if we're still just the United States and companies competing with one another here. We don't think beyond the shores. And so when you define markets, for example, when you're bringing a monopolization case or whether you determine uh, certain behavioral steps that companies are taking, you really have to review those very much in the context of a global economy. And I honestly don't think that our antitrust authorities often enough do that. And it's I think, being illustrated by at least some of the theories that they're putting forth as they pursue these major platform players. So tough world that the corporations today are living in, changing dynamics. What's your one summary takeaway that you would like to advise general counsels like yourselves and you know, those in your shoes today from this? I guess I, I would say, perhaps stating the obvious, there are many, many things, more things, I think, than the past that can have an impact on your company that it doesn't appear you have any real direct control over. And often uh, we find ourselves, I think, identifying those kinds of potential risks. But since there's no easy answer to how you can effectively respond if one of those develops, do a little bit of putting your head in the sand and not wanting to focus on what seem to be insoluble potential issues and problems. I think we need to stop that thinking. We need to think outside the box. We need to get good policy thinkers 
who are very familiar with international dynamics and really think about all the possible things that could happen to our business. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but there's all kinds of human rights issues that come up these days. And the Uyghurs are one major example. What happens there? Well, there are boycotts. There are concerns about how shareholders will look at you using products that are manufactured by those who we believe are being abused. So you've got to think about the possibilities, and you've also got to think about what do you do if and when one of those arises. Again, there's no easy answer to most of them, but you've got to not stick your head in the ground. And you've also got to think beyond your direct business, but think about all those whom you rely on, the inputs. Do you have an essential supplier of a widget, as I said, like semiconductors in Taiwan? Uh, that is at risk if something were to happen and there's no other source for the widget. Shouldn't you be thinking about alternative sources? I think people will react and say, yeah, I hear you, but there's not much you can do because building an alternative source means investing a lot of money. And these days, I have to worry about all the implications from a shareholder perspective. And I'd say one more thing about that. I think as a policy, what's been very harmful to the U.S., and I'm not sure how this really going to ever change, is the whole notion of what I'll call short-term planning, short-term thinking in terms of uh, corporate performance. Corporations, their directors, their C-suites are very worried about constantly producing shareholder value, constantly you know, doing better than last quarter. And we lose the ability to think long-term. And long-term is strategic thinking. And strategic thinking is the kind of thing that is implicated by the potential for these kind of geopolitical disruption. And I think if we could, as an environment, as a uh, corporate culture, get comfortable with the need to be long-term thinkers and take steps that may not be the right or at least the strongest from a financial perspective in the short term, but have long-term dividends, then that ought to be something that is applauded as opposed to um, denigrated. I saw that in a whole hostile takeover attempt by Broadcom and Qualcomm. This may be off subject, but I will say that one of the major reasons that we and others were so concerned about that was that the stated goal of the Broadcom management team was once acquired, they would limit the continuing R&D investments that Qualcomm had been making up to 20% or more of its revenue uh, devoted to R&D investments over the years. And they would limit that, which would lead to loss, for example, in the competitive race for 5G. And they would also disrupt its business model in a way that would tie its hands and make it less competitive from a global perspective. It might have had very immediate uh, short-term value to the company because you're not investing here and you're perhaps distributing funds, but in the long run, that would have been devastating for the continued existence. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Don. That was very interesting. I hope that we continue this conversation. These are new areas on the frontier. Companies need to evolve. This is not just an issue specific to the semiconductor industry. Many industries are repurposing their value chains. They are thinking about diversifying their operations, and we hope to continue this conversation with you again. Well, thank you, Kirti. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, you know me better than most, and I'm sure I'm long-winded about a lot of things, but it would be nice to continue the conversation at some point. There's lots and lots to say. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.